Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartmann and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. Arthur Gillis is truly an amazing dad. Arthur is married, he lives in South Africa and he's a titan in the hospitality industry. Maybe he's the most successful in Africa. He's a serial hotelier and a proud dad of five. Three of those kids are his biological children and two came with a second marriage. However, Arthur and his wife took the line of treating all kids as their own kids. All five are married and so Arthur is already a grandfather of three, soon four more children. The session is fun, uplifting and I found it very inspirational. Arthur speaks from the heart and his experience shares are powerful. Arthur is such a positive and motivational father figure and his own yearning for learning makes the session very special. As an entrepreneur and CEO, Arthur grew the Protea Hotels Group from the initial four hotels to the leading hotel operating company in Africa, consisting of 128 hotels in 19 countries with 16,000 employees. After 36 years, in 2014, Arthur facilitated the sale of the Protea Hotels, three brands and management company to the Marriott Group. In our session, Arthur shares his own journey of being a dad, a granddad, an entrepreneur and how he manages to blend the many family streams that make up his own family today. We talk about values, what he learned from his own father and other father figures throughout his lifetime and Arthur shares some amazing insights and very practical experience shares on building a successful family. Some of the shares are how conflict can be positive, his family forum, his family council, how he will ensure not to rule from the grave, how to forge bonds with your children, especially your boys, fathering the fatherlessness, why one should treat children appropriately instead of equally, money and its energy in family, turning disadvantages into advantages and relationships over money. To give you some more perspective on Arthur, he often attends funerals with people who have no contemporaries anymore. The learning he shares here, nobody ever, ever talks about how much money they've got or how much they've worked. They all talk about family or relationships. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were listen more to other dads who have walked this path before. Be kinder to yourself. If you have no choice, at least make the experience beautiful. In a blended family, never ever side with blood. Show your children your vulnerabilities. It's a strength and not a weakness. Find a project, like restoring a car or anything really, to do together with your boys and forge bonds in that way. Have a psychologist or an independent third party on call to act as family counselor always. Quality time has to equate quantity time. And this is a beautiful routine for all parents in the evening. What made you glad? What made you sad? 
What do you want to do tomorrow and what do you want to do right now? This is your time, you choose. And then it's 45 minutes or an hour, exclusive one-on-one -on -one time dedicated with one child. Okay, the regular listeners will know this already. I'm part of the initiative togetherforcapetown.com where we aim to raise enough money for kids in Cape Town's townships to pay for 3 million meals before the year is out. If you would like to support our cause, please do check out togetherforcapetown.com togetherforcapetown.com and donate or just reach out. To all of you who have contacted me or have donated, thank you so much for your support. This is truly amazing and it's really needed. Lastly, if this podcast helps you being a better parent, please consider leaving a review. I really love getting your feedback. Also, share it with other parents. Okay. Thank you so much. Enjoy the session with Arthur Gillis. So the best advice that I would give myself as a dad is, first of all, what I didn't realize is that these children don't come with a handbook. I thought that they do. Uh, unfortunately, um, real men don't read handbooks anyway. You know, when we get a new car or a watch or something, we, we don't read the manual. So even if I had got one, I guess I wouldn't have read it. And I would say that the best thing that I could have done would have been to listen more to other dads who've walked this path before me. Because without question, there is nothing that I'm experiencing that somebody else somewhere before me has not experienced. And I think that's the first piece. The second piece is I'd be kinder to myself. I wanted to be the best dad ever, and I still do. But when I make a mistake, I now have a kind of deal with myself that I will tell the children that I've made a mistake and, uh, and please forgive me for having made the mistake, but it is always done with their best interests in heart or what I thought was their best interest. And when I make a mistake, I say, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, and uh, hopefully we can move on. So this is advice to me as a dad. And uh, now that I'm a grandfather of three, And yesterday it was announced that uh, my daughter, one of my daughters is pregnant. So hopefully four in the not too distant future. And hopefully with those children, with the grandchildren, I will continue to improve on my skills as being a dad. So that's, that's my message from me to me. Arthur, I'm super stoked to have you on the show sure. today. Thank you very much for sitting with me. I heard you in a, a Zoom call um, that we had for some EO entrepreneurs. And I was really, really, it was very powerful for me very motivational and uh, you did say a few sentences around family and I knew immediately I had to have you on. So thank you for coming today and do you want to say a, a few lines about yourself um, and then we dive straight into Arthur the dad. Well Philip thank you very much indeed for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege that uh, somebody wants to hear of my trials and tribulations as an ancient dad um, but I, I, I'm, I'm Very, very excited to be here, and uh, I hope that I'm able to leave something behind which will assist other dads on this journey for which there is no handbook. Arthur, what's your, what's your business and how many kids do you have? Let's go straight there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, when I was growing up, I went into the hotel business, uh, went to hotel school both in Johannesburg and in America at Cornell and then worked for a company in South Africa, which after a few months, the owners decided to sell. 
And uh, our founder, a chap called Otto Stelik, um, was our chairman, remained our chairman, in fact, for 36 years. Um, he decided that he would build a hotel management company. And so we started off, and as Otto frequently says, we started with no money, but by the end, we had most of that left. And uh, <laughs> like my business. we built a group of 128 hotels. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> 128 hotels in nine countries. Uh, 16,000 employees, and we sold it to the Marriott Corporation on the 1st of April, 2014. Wow. So that's that's the short version. Yeah, and I'm sure that was quite a ride. And on on that, I know I know about your setup with family, and that's going to be an interesting one because you have six kids, right? Five. Uh, maybe you can sh share with us how that how that setup works and I'm very interested to hear how you may managed to combine family and business in that time because I'm sure that was intense. So I have three kids um, with my first wife. However, uh, God blessed me with the most astounding second wife, uh, an inspiration if ever I've met one, my true love and my true mentor, Lauren. Uh, Lauren had come out of also a long marriage. Uh, she uh, had separated then got divorced and we connected. Uh, she was in America, I was in South Africa and uh, at a uh, reasonably elderly age, all of a sudden I had two kids that uh, came into my life because she brought in a son and a daughter. And so Lauren and I, when we started going out and realizing this was going to be serious or could be serious, we did something very unusual. And that is that we employed a psychologist to act as a family counselor. Now, at this stage, of course, we had no issues. There were no issues. How could there be? But we took the advice of this very sage, very wise, very intelligent, but very upfront human being. And he assisted us in the process of how, how to be a new mom and dad. And we chose to take a line that said, we will treat all five children exactly the same, irrespective of who they were born to, whether they were Lauren's kids or my kids. And in fact, I very often, even now, get confused. I don't really remember. I don't focus on who's <laughs> Lauren's kids and my kids. They're all yeah, five, our kids. That's good. Yeah. And uh, that's the way that we want it to be. Yeah. Now, where we are at the moment is, uh, thank God, all five of them are married. Um, we have three grandchildren and another one announced yesterday. So, yeah, much to look forward to. Yeah, congratulations. And that um, psychologist or psych psychologist, you, you uh, kept him or her employed for a period of time? And how was that? How did that go concretely? Did you have sessions with everybody or everybody separate? And um, he was our family counselor. And we, we had both recognized that in our previous lives, we had not been the best that we could be. So in setting up this new relationship, we said, how do we be the best that we can be? And he was this third partner in our executive. He was an advisor to what he kept on calling the executive. So in the family, there's the structure that we are the executive and the children, all five of them, and now their spouses and the grandkids, kind of report into that. But we, we never make a distinction 
between us. And, and I learned some unbelievably valuable lessons. And if you're okay with it, I'll share one or two and see if they resonate with you. Yeah. And that's so exactly why we're here. Okay. So uh, our youngest, Gia, at the time was uh, about 14. And by the time she became 16, she, for example, wanted to go to a nightclub with her friends, as these children apparently today are want to do. And um, <laughs> and I said, under no circumstances, being an overprotective dad. And Lauren said, yes. So we spoke to Martin and we said to him, what do we do? Because my natural instinct would have been that we would agree to disagree. In other words, that we'd have a conference in the executive and then we'd say to her, look, you can't go or you can go. And he said, absolutely not so. You call her in and this is how the meeting went. We called her around the kitchen table and I started it off and I said, mom and I have discussed this and I think that you're too young, you're too immature and I think that your friends will lead you astray. But mom thinks that you should. And we've had a conversation. And I've agreed to go with her on the spaces tonight. So you can go out with your friends. The only condition is that I fetch you. One, two, three, four in the morning makes no difference. You call me and I'll be there to fetch you. Uh, but go out and uh, you know that we disagreed in our approach to this. But we are now united in our decision. And Martin was very wise in, in teaching us to where we disagree, to show our children that disagreement can be happen can happen in a constructive way, in a respectful way, and in a way that um, we can move on from having a disagreement. Whether it's what color we're going to paint the wall, to whether we're going to go uh, on a vacation together. On a side note, though, um, in more recent years, um, we had nine um, kids in the family, plus Lauren and me. In other words. Four of them were with somebody, and then Alexis wasn't. And um, we got a dog. And I took a picture of the puppy, and I put it on the family WhatsApp group about four or five years ago. And I asked everybody for, you know, give me a name. Tell me what you think the puppy should be called. And everybody came up with names. And then it was quite interesting that after about a day or so, they started lobbying each other to get more votes, effectively, for their <laughs> name of their dog. And I was the only one who stayed out. And after 10 days, I said, ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to announce the addition to our family of Zoe. And they came back and they said, but nobody suggested Zoe. And I said, that's because you people think this is democracy. This is not a democracy. This is a benevolent <laughs> dictatorship. I'll decide on the name of the dog. So the story has a follow-up. I'd, forgot <laughs> I'd forgotten all that. And we got a new dog called Jax. Okay, but he didn't have a name then. And I went to the family and I said, what do you think we should call this dog? And by this stage, Alexis was married or engaged. And Daniel, her husband, is an advocate. So he's a man of words. And he came up with lots of names. And all the family <laughs> as one went to him on the group and they said, be careful, this is a trap. Don't tell him anything because <laughs> he's not going to listen to you. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those urban legends in our family. And there are times that I believe that we should be benevolent dictators because sometimes yeah. children, even if they're 40, don't know what they don't know. Um, but generally speaking, it's far more uh, a democracy and we all have a comment. I think that also kind of leads into your advice to yourself in terms of uh, hearing experience share from other dads, right? Because even when you're 40, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I learn 
so much stuff on these calls, on these podcasts all the time from all of you guys because, yeah, I don't know. That's also what I'm doing. I'm leapfrogging those experiences in a sense and trying to to get ideas and to lend ideas and to incorporate them into into my being a dad. Yeah, so that's... Well, Philip, guess what? I'm 63 and I learn from people like you every single day. So every single interaction that you have with somebody else, if you can go away and learn something from it, and the reason I agreed to come on this call was so that I can hear your experience and from the questions that you ask to for me to be a better dad as a result of that which I learn. Yeah. That's that's my purpose in life is to be better. Yeah. I think many are and I think in today's world it's difficult because people are overwhelmed. Life is complicated anyways and now you also have to be a better this a better that and better everything and it's it's just a lot. So I think it's good if you get practical advice and and experience share from people who are, who've gone through this or maybe who have learned a thing or two and can share that. Well, for my kind of contribution to society. One of the things that I tend to do is I attend funerals of people who don't have any loved ones, who don't have many people to go to the funeral. So we've got a group of people who congregate and get together and attend funerals to be there for those, maybe one mourner or two mourners who don't have lots of friends. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's sometimes... Look, a funeral's always sad, but sometimes it's tragic. And these are very often tragic. But when the person stands up to inform the rest of us of the life of the person who passed away, and we had one day before yesterday of a woman who was 104, so obviously all of her contemporaries were not around anymore. Yeah. And when they stand up and they share, nobody ever, ever talks about how much money they've got. They talk about the relationship with other people and their family. Yeah. And therefore, putting money as a goal or a bigger business or any of that nonsense as a goal, right at the end, it becomes completely irrelevant. Yeah. And so I think we need to focus on that which is important, not that which kind of seems urgent. And uh, I, I really try and live that life. Have you changed? Have you changed that? Um, I agree with you. you. When you die, you will not say, "I wish I had been at the office more." Obviously, um, have you changed that? Have you have you had a change inside yourself? Were you that you used to try and have a bigger business, and because it certainly looks like it or sounds like it, can you share that? How was that journey for you? It it certainly was at one point, you know, that we wanted to be. Um, the largest hotel group, and then Otto, who was a very, very wise man, he said, no, we, we don't want to be. We want to be the best. Uh, if if we get to be the biggest, that's a side happens. kind of yeah. thing that happens. But we really want to be the best. And if we focus on the right things, then we, we'll move along. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be ambitious is a bad thing. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's a good thing. Because without ambition, then we just all flop around and, and kind of do nothing. Uh, but I am saying that the balance between family and work life is something which is very often misconstrued. I suppose that in the earlier years, you know, when you've got the sniff of the of the finish line or you can see you're closing in on a deal, and especially as men, you know, with lots of testosterone and we're running and we're going and we've got a team with us and we're shouting, 
maybe it's time also just to back off a little bit and uh, just accept that there are other things that are a lot more important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, funny, the, the most successful businessmen I speak to also on this podcast will say things like you do. Uh, and they will say lifestyle first and they will say family first and live the life you want to live and design the life as you want it to be. That That is so. And I totally agree with it. Sometimes it seems difficult because obviously, like you say, you want to close that deal and you do work late in the night and, and, and there goes the family dinner. But to have that, um, to not have that goal, but to have the goal of family first is an important one. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, how do you... Uh, but hang on, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with with not chasing this with all your kids? So I've got uh, a very strict schedule. I've got I start working at nine. My uh, uh, my drive to the office is twenty seconds because I walk next to the neighbor's house, <laughs> where it's right. nice and quiet, as you can hear. And um, then I work until twelve o'clock, and I drop my pen and I go back next door. Um, And we have lunch. So I've had breakfast already from seven to nine together or family morning and breakfast. Then we have lunch every day at 12 o'clock um, until 12.45. And then I go back to work at one and I drop the pen again at five. So today I will probably be 15 minutes over time in terms of our podcast. So I'll have lunch at uh, dinner at uh, 5.15 with the family. And then from five to seven, is children's time and bedtime is at seven on the dot. And then it's either uh, a night with my wife or I do something for myself or I work. And in lockdown now, we've got a uh, date night every uh, third day. Well, we, now we're allowed out, but in lockdown we had every third day because every other day um, it's night shift for one of us. So either myself, my wife or the night nurse. And I schedule all these things. So I make sure that I do get the family time in. And in terms of um, spending my time on the highest contribution, let's say, so that my time makes the highest contribution on the impact that I want to have. I formulated goals in uh, four different buckets. Family, uh, business, personal, and community, or self and community. And I worked those out together with Warren Rustan, my, my mentor. And I track everything. So I track my time on where I spend it within the buckets and I try to track the time so that, or try to spend the time. Well, this helps me be aware of where I'm spending my time so that I can actually measure if I'm um, driving the right um, activities to underpin my goals. To give you an example for family, yeah. I've got the, uh, the mission to live a life or to lead a life uh, worthy of my children's and wife's love and respect. And so underneath that mission, I can obviously make activities. So for instance, I've got a date night uh, once a month with my wife. Last weekend, we went to Call Call. It was beautiful, really amazing, filling the love tank. And uh, it's just one night, you know, but we can sleep, no screaming. Uh, I make a fire. In fact, I made three fires, one for the hot tub, one for outside, one for inside, because <laughs> I love fire. Yeah. And we had a nice dinner and we had a bottle of wine and it was just beautiful, you know, and, and so we do that. And then... For the kids, I've got um, solo sessions where I try to, and that's a difficult one because I have five. So, you know, I, and I can't do it in, in the evening. I have to do it in the day. So I try to get one hour, one on one time. It's difficult to leave the house with just one because then four others will start to scream. Sometimes it's then two or three or sometimes it's all of them. But I try to, to dedicatedly have uh, 
one-on-one -on -one time with them. And so I, I've got all these activities that I track against. And yeah, the podcasters, by the way, is one of them to, to be uh, fit and healthy in my mind and to learn around being a better dad. And, and part of that is reading books. And another part is obviously speaking to amazing fathers like you. Oh, that's brilliant because I, I think that what, what you're not saying over here, but it's self-evident from what you're speaking about, is that discipline is at the core of everything that you do. Yeah. If you don't have discipline, you cannot do any of this stuff. And so if you read the life of Ludwig, Ludwig van Beethoven, you would assume that this guy was, you know, you know, on cocaine and then maybe smoked a joint and then, <laughs> you know, drink four bottles of wine and then he'd sit at the piano and he'd do something. No. But in fact, if you read his memoirs and you read what people have written about him, he was up at four o'clock in the morning doing mathematical equations of the music that he was writing. Really? Yeah. You don't get to be a musical genius yeah. by just, you know, being spaced out and not caring about anything. You get there by damn hard work. And so I think that whilst one wants to lead, lead a life in certain boxes that is free and easy, you know, for example, I, I, just taking from what you said, one of the things that I learned, because uh, I was very cocky in, the, you know, when I, when I started off being a dad and I was asked by a friend of mine, she said to me, a psychologist, uh, and she said to me, um, how do you spend time with your kids? And I said, well, I'll come home from work and I'll shower and we'll have dinner and then, you know, I'll sit with them and chat. And uh, she said to me that I, I actually haven't got a clue. She said, you obviously don't understand. In those days, I used to wear a suit to work. And the deal then was that I would come home and I would jump into bed with each of the kids. Mm -hmm. And she said, quality time has to equate to quantity time, exactly what you're doing, where there's an hour per person. So what I did was I gave them each 45 minutes. Starting with a younger two who wanted to go to sleep early on, I would literally let them smell the work on me, the fact that dad has been working today. And I would then say, it's your time. What made you glad? What made you sad? And uh, what is it that you want to do tomorrow? And what do you want to do now? Do you want to do a jigsaw puzzle? Do you want to read? Do you want me to read to you? Do you want to sing? What do you want to do? Whatever you want to do, this is your time and let's do it. And I attribute the relationship that I have with my children to that time, which I spent with them. Yeah. Um, and I've spent enough time now with all five of my kids and the grandkids and, the, and their spouses. If one of them calls me, I will schedule to speak to them within the next couple of hours. Yeah. I will drop whatever else I'm doing. And if they want to speak to me, I want to speak to them. Because I understand that if they deem it necessary or desirable to have a chat, they will let me know and I will make the time to speak to them. So more or yeah. less taking the lesson from you. Yeah, it's true. And one dad told me, if they do want to spend time, better take that opportunity because next time they might not want to spend time. You can't get that. You can't get that ask back, you know. And it's going to be short enough, anyways. I'm I'm often sad that we have. I mean, yes, yeah, sad. I, I'm very aware of the fact that I've got five children, pretty much at the same age, and so we had them all at the same time. We had five under. Uh, <laughs> we had five under two within thirteen months, but at the same time, they will all leave um, at the same age, right? They will all go to study or get married or whatever they do or work, I don't know, um, pretty much around 
18 to 22 or something. And yeah, hopefully then there's grandchildren. and I'll, I'll, So that's another uh, goal, for instance, I have. And by the way, on that, I cannot get up at four o'clock in the morning. That's really my weak point. I really, <laughs> I would love to get up at five o'clock every morning, have two hours to myself because they obviously, they get up at 6.37 and then my morning is screwed, you know, no more journaling or <laughs> meditation. No, no, so, no, 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 no. Your morning is not screwed. Your morning is made. Yes, but exactly. I, I lose the freedom of choice in that sense where I want That's, to spend. You it. have no choice. Don't <laughs> you see? Like when my family thought they had a, a choice in the name of the dog, you have no choice. But at Nothing. least it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's another goal. I want to be fit enough in twenty-five years so they'll ask me to come with them on a surf trip. Hopefully, it's a surf trip because I surf. But if it's a mountain, if it's a climbing on a mountain or something, that's the same level of fitness that's required. And the trick is the 25 years are never out. So it's always in, 20, in 25 years because then hopefully I get yeah. to do that with the grandchildren as well. <laughs> hey, Arthur, I wanna, I've got two to, uh, um, things that I really want to dive into. I don't know which one maybe we do first. So the one is, for my context, uh, I, I also have children from another mother but in my context i adopted them um, when they were six months old so it's a little bit different than with you but it's never it's nevertheless interesting for me they're also just my children i i make absolutely no distinction and yeah or differentiation between my biological children and the adopted children um and the other thing i wanted to talk to you about uh, maybe we start with that first let's start with that first Share with us some of your learnings. I don't know how old the um, kids from the second marriage were when they came into your family, but share with us a little bit about Patchwork Family. Um, you already started a little bit with um, the counselor the last time I spoke to you, or you shared there was a family forum that you initiated when Corona hit. Just share with us a little bit the strategies of um, holding together. Patchwork family structures, if I, if I can call it that. Okay, so Lauren and I refer to this as a blended family um, where you've got two different streams that they've been blended together to make a particular uh, mix in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps the, the biggest mistake that we make is assuming that everything is always going to be hunky-dory between all of them. So the first thing that we learned, the very, very first thing that we learned, is, and it's difficult to do, is never to side with blood. Effectively, what that means is assume that two of our daughters have a disagreement about something. One's natural inclination is to assume that your biological children are correct. I'm really proud to say that I've overcome that, and I, so has Lauren, without question. and. She's got a master's degree in social work, and so she's much more tuned to this. Also, being a woman, I think naturally it comes easier to her. Um, and she's the, the glue that holds this family together without any shadow of a doubt. But we never side with blood. We look for both sides of the discussion. And the next thing that we do is let children's issues be children's issues. Now, bear in mind that we've got children of over 40. So, you know, when they're still children. And if they have a disagreement between them, it's their issue to sort out. They are not to bring it into the public space. 
The Family Forum, as you said, was something that was created as a result of coronavirus, uh, the first brilliant thing to come out of CV19. And uh, in fact, this evening at 7.30, we've got a call. And um, there on the call, it's uh, each person Zoom call, everybody gets a chance to speak, and uh, they can discuss anything they want to. And I think the biggest learning is that everyone is carrying their stuff around. A very famous preacher once said to his congregation, all of you take all your troubles, write them on a piece of paper, put them in a little brown paper packet and come and put this in front here in the altar, right in the middle. Everybody did. He said, you're now rid of your troubles. But the bad news is you've got to go and fetch a parcel. You've got to find one, pick it up and take it home. And 100% of the people in the parable picked up their own, their own issues. Because those are the issues that we know how to deal with. And so everyone has issues, whatever they are, and they change from time to time. And the fact that as a family, we can relate to the vulnerability of each other. And I cried on the first call. I mean, I, I, I cried for all of the people who I could not feed anymore, for the, for the people that were working for me who I had to let go. Against my will, I, but I had to try and let the businesses survive in order that they can come back and be employed. I don't care whether we've got any money left. That's irrelevant. But we just have to keep going long enough to be able to give an opportunity to these people. And I don't think my children had ever thought about it that way because it was never an issue. I mean, they know that giving jobs to people is the highest form of charity that there is, and they know that that's a massive priority for me. But at the same time, they saw me very vulnerable and very upset and very sad that I wasn't able to do more. So that's the, the one thing about the splendid family of ours. And uh, the other thing which we learned from the counselor um, and from other very wise, generally dads and moms around the world, uh, is that there is a saying that you treat your children equally. Uh, Lauren and I do not. We do not treat our children the same. We treat our children appropriately. So imagine for a moment that you have a daughter who's a nursery school teacher, and then you have another daughter who's a nuclear physicist. Nuclear physicist is earning a million dollars a year, and the teacher is earning 8,000 rand a month before deductions. But they're both doing their passion, and they are both out there and making a difference to the lives of other people. The support that you give one is completely different to the, report, the, the support that is required for the other one, emotionally, financially perhaps, and whatever. So yeah. we, we look at each of them individually, and now we're in, in a family unit, and what we do for them is based on the needs that we perceive them to have. Yeah, I can agree with that. We had, I've never formulated it that brilliantly, but we, I grew up with four uh, siblings and I've got two half brothers. They're much older from my father's uh, first marriage. But what I've learned is that it always equals out. You know, if you, you can't have this now, but you'll have something later and it somehow equals out. And I think that's, that's a different way of saying the same. It kind of equals out and, and you don't need this now, but your sister does maybe and you'll get next time something different. 
That's fine. So when I joined Lauren's family, I had never, ever met a family like this. I think that they are superhuman. Her late dad, uh, a giant of a man in every conceivable way, uh, he took a view that the money that was there in the family was sitting in the middle of the table. And whoever needed it could use it. So the astounding thing is that between Lauren and her brothers, their wives and me have never, ever had any fight at all, ever, about anything, let alone money. Because money is there, it's a family resource, and it's to be shared by whoever needs it now. And whatever we've got is there for all of us to share it. That that's quite um, that's quite progressive in the sense that I mean he must be how old is he? Is he still alive or late dad? You said so. How old? When was this? Yeah. Uh, so he he's a guy who grew up in Twelling in the Free State, a place that doesn't have a traffic light. He yeah. was so poor that he went to university in his school clothes. Really? And yeah, when he when he got married to Lauren's mom, they had tomato boxes as as side tables. But he was a brilliant electrical engineer, built incredible businesses, but lived the most modest life. Really lived, drove a 20-year-old motor car when I met him, lived in a house, which, you know, just before he died, he asked me to sell on behalf of the family, which I did. Um, didn't get much money for it. He just wanted, he knew that he was dying and he wanted my mom-in-law, who he, he loved until his last day, uh, to be in a beautiful retirement home. Um, and then passed away and we started to find out things about him, about the charity that he did in his life, the amazing tributes that people paid to this man and uh, the financial success that he'd enjoyed very quietly, just giving more and more and more of it away and more and more of it came back into the family. But the view that he took was that that which is there is there for everyone to share it. And yeah. uh, he passed away on our fifth wedding anniversary uh, 11 years ago now. Uh, oh. And Lauren said that was a sign from him that, that he was happy with our marriage and, uh, uh, and so on. So what I'm saying is I, I, I also believe in that. Not, not that I would do something stupid and give one child 1% inheritance and, you know, the other child 99%. I wouldn't do something like that. Um, but at the same time, I'm trying to teach that value to the children. Uh, recently, uh, we did a distribution out of a trust. And the most important thing was that they each got a certain amount. And then they got a further amount, which had to be given to charity. And they had to decide which charity it went to. Because it is an obligation upon us to give to charities. Yeah, I've spoken to that. Who I, Money comes up often. So in my family, money was difficult always. My parents couldn't agree on how uh, how they should deal with money and it became a form of bad energy in that sense and they got divorced. And so I have a very interesting um, relationship to money. I try to just ignore it. I ignore it like as an energy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, money said to spend. When it comes in, it goes. And that's also a problem because I don't save. I just like spend it because I know I can make new money. But that's also not healthy. But so um, one dad told me that um, children shouldn't inherit any money. Interesting point. He said at the age of eight, I sit them down. He's very well uh, well off. And um, 
yeah, he tells them, look, you will never inherit money ever. I'll teach you how to work. You know, my, with some of his kids, he's in business together and they have very, very successful businesses. Um, they have a very structured approach on how to kid, teach kids uh, how to deal with money. Um, and that's also an interesting approach. You know, another dad told me, you have, uh, he, gives them, he gives them an allowance, younger children, and then they, they have to split the money three ways. One portion they can spend as whatever they want. One portion they have to give to charity and one portion they have, and they can choose the charity obviously, and one portion they have to invest and where they invest, uh, they have to discuss uh, with him and ultimately it's their decision, but he advises them on, on what to do. And I like that approach too. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong or right, but I think it is valuable to think about how you want to teach um, money to children and that money is an energy and um, you started with saying that they've never had a fight and then came the money. Yeah. Money is only really just an energy and some people assume too much of that energy in a positive or negative way and then it becomes unhealthy as everything. And I also do believe that you can't sit on energy. It has to flow. Like you said, um, your father-in-law, he gave more and more away and more and more came back into the family and that's also how money works because it's just yeah, energy. You, you, you did write about that. For the family, uh, they would preserve the family unity above absolutely anything else. Yeah. And we have had tricky situations because we've got situations where we have different beliefs in politics, we have different beliefs in everything from religion to anything else that's controversial. Yeah. But what we do is we agree to disagree in a respectful way, and that's the way that we try and be. It's, uh, there's a big difference. I will tell you that I think that, that money has energy, and I think that there's good money and there's bad money. Yeah. And there's good energy and bad energy. Yeah. And again, during my the course of my career, I came to recognize that there are people. Um, <laughs> I met a, a, a multi-dollar billionaire some time ago with one of my daughters who wanted us to consult for him on a job. And uh, I said to him, you don't have enough money to employ us. And <laughs> Was he an asshole? No, no, no not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, uh, okay, I better not tell you, but because everybody knows him. But what I said to him was, I said to him, this is not a project that will be in your interest to employ us. Yeah. It will, I'll, I'll charge you an absolute fortune, which I'm sure you'll pay. But it's not the right thing to do. It's, it's not the right thing for you, and it's not the right thing for us. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you need to be in a position to do that. I don't want to be a smart ass and say, that you can do that. If you if you can't feed your family, you have to do some jobs that, that you know you're not very comfortable with. But the minute that you do have enough money, I, I think it's it's incumbent upon you to decide which energy, money energy, will feed your soul and will be good, and which money money energy you would prefer not to have. And so, in the hotel business, our company came of age when we threw a hotel out through lack of standards and through the owner of the hotel's poor behavior rather than their ability to pay. Because in the very early years, the first couple of years, we had to take everybody's money. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived. But the minute that we did that uh, and we were on our feet, we immediately decided whether people were paying us with a good heart or a bad heart. And if you were paying us with a bad heart, we would, in fact, prefer not to do business with those people. And that came back and multiplied itself for us over and over and over again. 
Yeah. Deals with bad people are bad deals. That's yeah. really what you're saying. So I just want to share one more story that goes yeah. to the heart of what you were speaking about, perhaps. I have a friend who's extremely wealthy. He's, he's a very wealthy chap, and he's got two kids. And I said to him this question, because, you know, he and I were sitting having a chat, and he said, what are you going to leave your children? And I said, well, they know that when I die, I'm going to leave them my very best wishes and hope they have a good life. <laughs> and <laughs> and my, my success will be if we spend the last day with Lauren and I on the earth, and that's it, then nothing left behind. Um, but in fact, that's not the case. So um, uh, what he's done, he called me on that. He said, that's complete bullshit. I know that's a joke, but it's bullshit. What he does, he takes his kids once a year, and they go skiing, and they go on yachts, and they do whatever, and he flies them business class. And he says, when I die, I'm going to leave you enough money to fly economy once a year overseas. Do you like this business class stuff? Do you, do you like it? Does this appeal to you? Guess what? You're going to have to work from economy to business. So you're not going to have to work for your economy class ticket. I'm going to give you that. But if you want to fly business class, that bit you're going to have to work for, which I found very interesting. Mm. The approach that I've taken to money um, is that on the day of my death, Every single asset that I have, every single one, is valued, okay, by an independent valuer. And those and my trustees know this because I've drummed it into their heads a thousand times. <laughs> and what will then happen is that every person who inherits will get a certain number of, let's call them shares, uh, and call it, let's call it monopoly money. And they will say, right, the first asset is this boat or you know, speedboat or an old car or a something. And everything will have a value. And whoever wants it can bid for it. If they want it, they, they pay 20% less than the price, the official price. If two of them want it, they can either outbid each other or they can agree to share it. So this little cottage that I'm in at the moment is our little holiday cottage. But I'm not going to leave that in a trust for the five of them to work out the rules about how the hell they should use it or not. They can either buy, all five can buy it, or alternatively, one of them can buy it, or two can buy it. I don't care. But until such time as they put an ATM at the cemetery where I can go and draw my money, I'm leaving all of this stuff, and I'm trying not to rule from the grave. So if somebody likes a particular thing and is valued at something, They can decide if they want it or not. If not, sell it and let somebody else get the enjoyment from it. Because I am determined not to have my children fight about money after I've died. I just don't want that to ever happen. And it's very yeah. important, very important for me to do that. Obviously, I'm in a yeah. much later stage and much closer to death than, than you and probably most of the people who are going to be uh, listening and watching this podcast. But... Uh, Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's important for me. And therefore, I started that way. So the assets that I've invested are all capable of being unwound. Some of them a little bit more difficult than others, like shares in private companies. But everything else is capable of being unwound. Uh, I don't want to put money into things that, that can't be unwound. It's, it makes it just too difficult. Yeah, my company is illiquid. That's, that's a problem, of course. But I mean, we're much, 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 much smaller. 
but I mean, hopefully by that time I, I would have sold it already and I'll do something for my heart, <laughs> follow my passion. Hang on, you, yeah, but, but hang on, that, that's because it's younger. The yeah. company is younger. Uh, the, the, there's a big difference between bigger and younger. Um, a young company, it, 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 in its life cycle, it should not be sold out of the gates. It, should, it needs to mature and then be sold. So don't push, don't push for the sale before it's ready. Took us thirty six years to get to a point that we could sell the company. I don't want to scare you, but it wasn't tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. We're considering to sell a very, very small percentage now, just to make more cash. We are still very healthy in, in despite Corona. We're pumping actually, but I've learned that cash revenue and people is now the, the the biggest thing that I need to focus on, and so that it makes sense to to me to um, tie a client in more. Um, he wants to have some shares and yeah sure you know he, he gives us a bigger contract for that and that's okay but otherwise i will let it mature yeah so your Great. system works in the sense that so you give them some money you call it monopoly money and they can spend yeah. that money on the assets you don't not expect them to have the money to 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 buy your assets no. because that's difficult then you can't no 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 they don't have any money let's assume they've got no money yeah so um the what they will do is they will get monopoly money yeah yeah, uh, which will total the value of all the assets. Yeah. So if the, let's assume the assets are worth 100. Yeah. And let's assume they're 10 people that are inheriting. 10 each. If uh, they get 10 each, now an asset comes up for a rand. Who wants it? Well, maybe nobody wants it. Maybe it was a, a piece of my fantasy, something that I loved or Lauren loved, and nobody, nobody wants it. You know, it's like this piece of artwork that your family's had forever. And it meant something to somebody there, and everybody else thinks it's bloody hideous. They, they hate it. It might be valuable, but it's hideous. Well, then get rid of it. What do you want to keep it for? What must I tell my children? They have to have this. The, the thing that you see over and over are these homes that are filled with these antiques. And the parents die, and all the children want to do is run away from it. Nobody wants it. Yeah. So why are we putting a millstone around the neck of our children, especially as they are millennials, and especially that they do not believe in owning this kind of stuff. They can have whatever they want. Yeah, they believe in owning time and, and self-purpose. Yeah. yeah. So if they want to go and blow the money that they get, and it's gone in a week, I'm sorry for them, and I'll be, I'll be out of here. It's not going to be my problem. I promise You're you out of here. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'll be looking either down or up, but when I do, <laughs> your problem, not my Hopefully problem. Hopefully down. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Do they have to stick to the price of the valuation, or can they just yeah. can no, they no, jointly they can, decide that? Yeah, they can buy it up. So already the comment has been in the family: we are going to keep the holiday home. Uh, I say that's fine, but then you've got to get around the table and you've got to decide the rules on how you're going to use it. I don't want to be the one to dictate those rules. Yeah, you might form a little company and have a little constitution and whatever. That's all your problem. Uh, you know, too many people write these wills where the the rules of all this stuff become so complicated that nobody can actually work out what to do with it. I like that system. I really like it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I hope we and, both and, have a long way to go before it takes in uh, into place. Yeah, so I've got a couple of old cars and stuff. And, you know, I, I already know that there are members of the family that like particular ones. And it seems as though... You know, like my little grandson, he loves one of those cars. He absolutely adores it. Well, all things being equal, he can own it. 
all he has to do is decide he wants that more than he wants the money or he wants yeah. the property or he wants whatever. Go yeah. ahead. Own it. But no implicitly, problem. that also means that you can't give him the car now because that would be unfair, right? Because Are you bloody mad? Well, I'm not giving kind of them anything. No, they're not exactly. getting anything. <laughs> Mine. I work damn hard for it. How I should I give it to them? Are you crazy? <laughs> and I like the car too, so you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Funny. You can... You can drive with me. You can drive yeah. the car. You can do it. But it's my car. Yeah. So it's my, it's all, all my things. You want, go out and work. Work as hard as I did. And then you can have one as well. Yeah. Um, well it's back to where, business class and economy. Anyway. Yeah. It, I like the system. It's a good system. And I, I'm sure people will actually take it in and think about this. So that's really valuable. Thank you. Yeah. I've also got to be careful. I've got to be careful that I don't do something to hasten my own death. That they sit around one day and say, you know, the old bastards were a hell of a lot more dead than alive. <laughs> so <laughs> we should push him off a cliff or something. <laughs> you also have to make sure that you have enough monopoly money to buy your own assets and at the same yes. time make sure there's still some assets left. So it's, <laughs> you know. No, no, there will be. Don't, don't worry, it's all sorted yeah. out. And there's enough to pay state duties and stuff like that. So they will, they will be sorted out. Yeah, of out. course. Anyway. Um. It, what what is there that I haven't brought up or that we haven't gone to yet that that you want to share? Because I know you've thought about this. Share, share some stuff that's meaningful for you as a dad, in your journey as a dad, or from your own dad, or yeah, that we can learn from. Uh, my own dad uh, is ninety two now, ninety one, going on ninety two, and uh, he doesn't have much life left. He's uh, in a wheelchair. Um, in bed, uh, 24-hour-a-day care, and so on. Um, but because I think of his upbringing, because of uh, having to, to leave school early uh, to go and work on the family farm, uh, because his dad died unexpectedly of a ruptured appendix, which uh, in those days was fatal, um, he was very skeptical and very, very hard. And astoundingly, only in the last year has he told me that he loves me. He always gave me to understand that I wasn't trying hard enough and that I wasn't good enough. And having felt that previously, uh, I always tell my children how much I love them, all the boys, all the girls, all the husbands, all the wives, and I love them very much, and I tell them that. I'm very demonstrative. I hug them, and it's part of the makeup. And it's sad that he was not able to demonstrate that during his lifetime, uh, something which I would like to see as an improvement for the next generation for myself. Mm, we talked about that. Many dads, today dads, grew up without a dad or with an absent dad because of the different, I should say, traditions or role understandings, I guess. Do you want to talk on that? Yeah, I think that um, uh, during the Second, Second World War, which is when my dad grew up, uh, life was very hard. It was it was subsistence life. You, you know, every Friday you'd have a look and see if you had enough money to go another week. Uh, there was never any extra. There was never any luxury. Um, and we were fortunate because we were white growing up in South Africa. And I just cannot think of the... The, the 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 huge drama that that many black dads had to face uh, earning wages that were just not enough to come out on 
Uh, it's it's just the saddest thing ever. And my life work is now dedicated to, to trying to help to change that um, because of it being so abhorrent to me. In the context of just trying to survive, I don't ever blame my dad for not having told me that he loves me. I don't think he knew any other way. He worked really, really hard. And as a result of that, it, it was, I think, culturally, from a time perspective, from a everything, was just not seen to be manly, to be doing that. But as we show our children our vulnerability, and as I said, if we cry, they seem to love us more for our vulnerability, not just for being, you know, the paternal, the big patron of the family who, you know, never shows any cracks or any weaknesses and so on. Mm. So it's something that I, I try and work on. And um, I think that showing vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness. Yeah, definitely. And that's powerful. And it also leads back into your own advice to yourself to apologize because apologizing to your kids or to anyone kind of levels the playing field, especially since you are, you have leverage as the parent. So you're more powerful in that sense. You can you can overpower every argument, anyways, any argument. And so apologizing is is great because it it allows everybody to be on the same plane again. Yeah. The nicest thing is if you do overrule them, um, because this argument or discussion needs to come to an end, and a day or two later you find out that you were wrong, and you reopen the argument and you reverse your position, and say I was too hasty in making that decision. I was wrong. I apologize. You were right. We're doing it your way. It it changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. And it's something that I want to be more aware of uh, as, as a dad. I, I want to learn more about that. And where I'm wrong, I want to say that. Mm -hmm. I want to speak to you on fathering fathers or fathering husbands or fathering men that came into your life because your daughter's married, I know, because we talked about it. Can you share that a little bit? Of course, men come into your life, and uh, I'm privileged to have three of them, three of my new sons uh, in my life. And of course, they came from completely different backgrounds. Uh, and it's the same for them as it is for the two women that came into our lives. And so they have to kind of meld into our family. And I can only imagine how difficult it is for them. And so we have lots of these discussions on values. And very often, they might have different values, maybe better values, maybe other values. And I think, too, that we have to be respectful. And as each of them joined the family, so the family dynamic changed a little bit with the input that they gave. But the strength of our company always was that we had diverse people on the board and we employed diverse people. And so too, these ones who come into our lives change the dynamic of our family. I am very happy to say that in our case, it's always been for the better. They've always added a dynamic or an element or a perspective, which is an element that had not been perhaps thought of before. Mm. The sadness, though, is that with all of them, 
come a lot of their friends who kind of visit with us and become our friends. And the number of especially men that I see out there that are kind of my kids' friends um, that don't have a father figure in their life is astounding. And the challenge for us is that we have to be dad not only to the children in our family, but to a number of others. And it's always, for me, heartening on family, on Father's Day to receive from other people, from the, the gentleman, the, the Malawian gentleman who works for us, who effectively didn't have a dad. And he always thanks me for being his dad on Father's Day because he is like another one of the family. And like I say, the, the friends of our children, many of whom whose dads are alcoholics or drug addicts or um, simply absent uh, by virtue of having deceased or just left the building. They just chickened out and, and left without having a relationship with their children. And it is it, it always moves me to tears that and it's incomprehensible that somebody can leave behind a family and just literally walk away from them and, and have nothing to do with them anymore. I, I, struggle, I struggle with that. But I do see it as an obligation and a privilege to be able to share and assist in the raising of those men um, mm -hmm. you know, in my life. So I suppose I have, I have other children as well. A big topic. I, I re I'm reading a book called Raising Boys. Um, they talk about it and I've had another dad on Dr. Malik Mohammed. He talks about it a lot and it, you can make it very, um, it's very easy if, if you, if you think about it really in the beginning, I was like, ah, oh, but how do you father other children? Well, often it's maybe, um, your friend who's a single mom and you ask the boys, it's, it's especially around boys, the, the issue of abs absent fathers. And maybe you ask the mom of, uh, the single mom if, if the boy wants to come to the game. Yes, and you take him, and and your children, and that's it, and and that's already a fatherly kind of act. You don't have to become the father, you don't have to become her partner, but at the same time, you know, you're fathering that child, maybe just for that day, and that's very powerful. Yeah. So I don't know if the the raising boys that you're reading is the one by Steve Bedoff, um from Australia. Um, yeah. So Steve's a friend of mine. Okay, and. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story that I was lying in a swimming pool in Istanbul. He and I were both speakers at a conference and we're lying in the swimming pool on the banks of the Danube. And he starts to tell me about, you know, I, I at that stage had maybe a 11 year old son. And uh, he says that men have to do things where I said, Steve, listen, I, I've now spent some time telling you about the hotel industry, which you seem to find quite fascinating. I need to hear from you from the horse's mouth, man on man, How can I be a better dad? And to to my son. Yeah. Because I realize this thing's coming to a, it's going to, you know, there's a train smash coming and I can see it because, you know, he's becoming a man. My little boy is becoming a man. And he says, you've got to do something. You've got to take it for a drive because men don't like looking at each other when they speak. They like looking forward. And that was the day that I decided to invest in classical cars. And the other thing that he said to me, you've got to do something. What are you doing? I said, well, I don't know. He said, you've got to do something with your son. And he said, not the bullshit of going to a game. I want proper stuff. So I said, well, I'm having a Land Rover Series 3 restored for me. It's worth two and a half thousand rand on a great day. This thing is just a 
bucket of bolts. And he said, you've got to do it with your son. So I came back to Cape Town. I brought it. I got it back from the guy who was restoring it. I put it in my garage to the disgust of my first wife, who <laughs> didn't want this terrible bloody falling to pieces guy in the garage. Now it comes out. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was the reason. Maybe, Maybe that, that was, was the reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. You helped notes. me. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I've got the thing on jack stands, and I'm underneath the car with my son, who's now 12, and I'm busy undoing the sump nut, and I know this dirty oil is going to go everywhere. And he said, Dad, I want to ask you something. He's lying on his back next to me. I said, what's that? He says, there's this girl in my class, and I want to ask her out to a movie. And I said, well, the fact that he wants to get my advice on how yeah. he should do this. Yeah. So I went into the kitchen, and I picked up the phone. There were no mobiles in those days. And I phoned Steve Biddulph, and I said to him, you, my friend, uh, in Australia, by the way, I said, you are an absolute genius. I want you to know, man to man, you are a genius. Because in working on that, that's what we do. So my little grandson, Jordan, who's now eight, he <laughs> he's asked uh, at school to comment, uh, name something about your grandpa. He says tools. He's always busy in the tool room. He's always busy building something. And when he's with me for his third birthday, he got a little go-kart, one of these little things for the you pedal. And of course, it comes yeah. IKEA style in a flat pack box. Yeah. So I got it home and I started assembling it. And Lauren said to me, what are you doing? Are you mad? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you've got to build it with Jordan. I said, I'm a slow learner. You're dead right. So I put it all back in the box. He came out of school. And now if I'm asking for a size 10 spanner or a Phillips screwdriver or a a torque wrench, he knows exactly what I'm talking about, and he and I build stuff together. So I'm building my my relationship with the next generation of men exactly the same way as I did with my own son, because I think it is incumbent upon us to do something. I'm not suggesting for everybody that they get all greasy and, and messy. Whatever it is that you do, whether it's gardening or whether it's art or whatever it is, or surfing, go and do that with an, with your son as he's becoming a man. and he will forever uh, thank you for that the building of that relationship, and it's not something that I would ever have guessed. So thank you, Steve Budolf. I until today appreciate so much the lesson that you taught me almost thirty we years want, ago. We today. want Steve on the podcast after that. He's he can't. Sure, <laughs> you're going to have to call him. <laughs> yeah, do you know how Steve works? Steve and Sharon, they both psychologists. Um, <laughs> they're very funny. They wrote this book, uh, Raising Boys, and. Uh, they don't ha didn't have a boy or a child, uh, no. but he said he said when when he'd sold six hundred thousand copies, he reckons it was safe to have a family. And he had to uh, make one. Yeah. yeah, in December every year he works out how much money he needs, and however much money he needs, then he starts working in January, and usually by February he has enough money for the whole year, and then he stops working until the end of the year, and then he starts working again the next year. Well, we definitely want to speak to him. <laughs> He's an amazing guy. He's an astounding guy. And how does he and, do that? Uh, how does he make that money in, in, in two, three months? Or does he just need so little money? Best-selling authors in the world. He's, okay. he, he, can, he can command any price he wants to to keynote anywhere, he you know, anywhere in the world. And so that's what he does. But yeah. with it, he's the most down-to-earth, fun-loving, kind human. I brought him out to South Africa, 
And uh, I watched him in a forum environment with uh, 10 men uh, dealing with issues that fathers have with each other. And I just was spellbound by the incredible power that this man exerts. You know, this scrawny little thin guy with, who seems inconsequential. You could walk past him a thousand times. But when he gets up and he starts speaking, he commands the room and the words that he speaks has such take-home value for everybody. He just is genuinely on a different level. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. We lit Literally, we listened to the book, it's on Audible, together now uh, on, on date weekend with my wife in the car, driving back and uh, at, in cold call in the hot tub. <laughs> yeah. So we do, it, we do that as well. It was good Lauren, for the relationship too. Yeah. yeah. Lauren and I do the same because uh, on our drives, whenever we go on a, we take one of the old cars, or we come uh, from Cape Town to Clan William or back, uh, we listen to podcasts and audiobooks uh, by people like Wayne Dyer and Steve and people like that. And the result of that is that we stop at some point, we stop the, 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 the recording and we then discuss it and see if there's anything yeah. that we've learned that we are capable of applying and whether we agree or disagree. And, and so it becomes a topic for discussion because we are, on a, we are on a never ending journey to become better parents and better spouses. So that's what we try. Yeah. That's a good ending. Can I ask you, do you have two or three books that you can share off the top of your head since we're talking about books anyways for dads or parents or children or bringing up children? Um, I would definitely, yeah. 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 And or, also personal development. So operating at your highest impact or at the point of your highest impact, that's also something that I find very, very valuable, especially in the context of parent and business. So could you share a few of those? I, I think that most of the uh, the business books um, can actually be applied in family as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I was with Steve Covey uh, in Los Angeles and... Um, he speaks about the seven habits and then the, the book about the eighth habit, which was the last one before he passed away. Uh, he talks about the, uh, the story of Great Ormond Street Hospital where uh, a, a member of our family actually is in charge of the neonatal cardiac um, ICU. And uh, he uses Alan Goldman as an example of how you think outside the box uh, and solve problems. And I think that If one listens to all of these stories, um, they might be about business or they might be about some other aspect of our lives. There are things that we can do to make us better parents if we apply those same rules in our lives. Uh, the other stuff that I think is astounding is Jim Collins. Um, and again, uh, Jim and I did a session in Singapore And what he spoke about, um, you know, the good to great stuff, mm -hmm. the latest work that he's done is about companies that he predicted would do well and didn't, and the companies he predicted would fail and actually didn't fail and why, <laughs> and the research that they've done. And what I like about it is that he's take home value. So kind of spoiler alert, let me tell you where the, the bottom line is because I, I was listening to him rapidly. Um, And, and he says, every body, every company gets the same amount of luck, both good and bad. The difference 
between people that are extraordinary and companies that are extraordinary is the way in which they play the hand that they are dealt. And people say to me, you sitting in the middle of a coronavirus uh, epidemic, it must be horrific. You're in the hospitality business, in the worst business there is. How can you remain cheerful? And the answer is, because at least I'm not alone. There are every one of my friends that are in this business globally and in South Africa are in the same position. And all that it does is it creates an opportunity for us to emerge better and stronger yeah. at the end of it. We have to take this disadvantage and turn it into some kind of an advantage. And maybe it was so that our lives were completely out of control and maybe we were operating on a level that we were never supposed to operate on. Yeah. And so I foresee an opportunity that the hotels and resorts and game reserves are actually going to become busier and holiday places and retreats are going to be what people now start factoring into their lives instead of the endless pursuit of a couple of dollars. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and it is a good... Um It's not good because it's very, very difficult for many, many people, and I'm not say, I'm not taking that lightly. But it's a, it's a, a valuable time in terms of a reset and a forced deceleration of the world. That's for sure. That's besides job losses and camp businesses and all of that. Yeah. And what is our obligation? Our obligation is to employ as many people as we possibly can. Yeah. Those people who were hurt so badly. It's going to be, we're going to have a moment of opportunity where we can give back to them that which they lost. Yeah. And those who will fly in the next generation will be those who look after the people who were the worst hurt during this time. And I think that those who are destined to fail are those who go and gobble up assets in order to make more money and to do what I don't know. But it's not about that. It really isn't about that. Yeah, I agree. Arthur, with that, thank you so, so much. This was a super valuable session for me and fun. Thank you. Thanks, Philip. And I really appreciate having learned from you. And I will be a regular uh, listener now to your podcasts and uh, learning from you and everybody that you interview. All the very best. Thank you. Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked the session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.